We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Hey, welcome back to Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herter. Today we're going to jump into Psalm 2, um, and here's what happened on that. I was actually going to move into uh, Daniel, um, but I did that prematurely. Uh, I jumped into waters that I was not prepared for, <laughs> so I, uh, I I made a I made a uh, pretty bad actually podcast on Daniel. Didn't even know what I was doing, but uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and back up here a little bit. I figured before I get into Daniel, I wanted to touch on Psalm two. It's super important um, to understand what the fundamental um, realities that underlie humanity's desire to break free from God, to create their own civilization free from God. Like, where does this, where does this idea come from? I mean, we, we, we talk about the singularity, um, and we think of it in terms of, you know, human beings using technology to solve the answers of sin and death when those issues have already been resolved in the cross of Jesus, in the work of the Son of God. So what is it that's in humanity that isn't satisfied with what God has accomplished, that doesn't believe the truth of who God is and what He did in Jesus Christ? He solved sin He solved death, these two realities that hang over every one of us, and we are powerless to overcome. He overcame. But for some, that's not good enough. They want to solve these issues themselves, and so they they look to their tools, to the things that they make with their hands, as if somehow these things can save them. When there is no power in these things, these Whatever it is that you hold in your hands, whatever it is that you can imagine and make, doesn't have power to redeem. So just to kind of back up uh, a minute, Babylon singularity, you know, what, what am I trying to do here? Well, I thought the best course of action would be to kind of slowly walk through some high, high points in the Bible. I started out in in Genesis 3 with the entrance of sin into creation, the fall of Adam. And how did he fall? Well, he fell to a promise of a serpent. And what was that promise? Well, the promise was if you follow the path of intelligence, you will become like God. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be able to see things you've never seen before. You're going to be just like God. You're going to know good and evil, right? So this ability to know, this ability to cognate was what the serpent fooled Adam and Eve with to become like God. And we we know how that turns out. 
then I, I move I move forward to Genesis eleven where we have human beings coming together, deciding that they want to take their place among the gods. They're going to build a gateway of the gods, and how do they build this gateway? Well, they 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 make a building that goes really high, and and God looks at this building that goes really high and says, well. I'm not worried about the building, but if I don't stop this, they're going to keep trying, and whatever they imagine they'll will become possible to them. So rather than dealing with that, God just confuses the languages, so everyone is speaking different languages. They can't communicate anymore. Then we jumped forward to Genesis uh, 28, where you have Jacob dreaming of a staircase that comes down from heaven, and on that staircase, angels are ascending and descending. Jacob wakes up, wakes up from his dream and says, wow, this place, this is, this is the house of God. This is where God dwells. He basically is saying that, the, that he saw God, and God was there, and God was a staircase. Sounds strange to say it that way, but much like Moses saw God in a fire, Jacob saw God in a staircase. And that staircase was a gateway, it was a door into heaven. So the very thing that they were trying to build in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, Jacob has a dream about in Genesis 28. Except it's not a human attempt to reach up into the clouds. No, it's a staircase provided that goes from heaven to earth, and that staircase later identifies itself, or I should say himself, in John chapter 1, where Jesus says, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus identifies himself as the staircase that Jacob dreamt about. But this isn't a building. This isn't architecture. This isn't the, the use of technology to build ourselves into heaven. No, this is a provision, God's provision, and not just any provision, the ultimate provision, the provision of his own son coming to earth saying, hey, anyone who recognizes me and follows me, loves me, obeys me, I will know that person, that person will know me, and we will go on like this forever. And why will it go on like this forever? Well, because the blood that was shed is sufficient for all eternity. That is the worth of the one that came. So while fallen humanity is busy thinking, dreaming up ways of, of building uh, buildings and architecture into heaven, God is saying, no, that's not the way. You want to build, you want, you want to walk through the gate, then you're going to have to walk through the gate that is provided. And that gate is provided in the staircase that Jacob encountered in Genesis 28. Then we move forward to Exodus 32, or I should say Exodus 20, because we, we start off with the uh, we start off with the Ten Commandments, and the first command that comes directly from Sinai, number one, is do not make an image of anything that you see in heaven or earth or sea or anywhere else. Don't create an image like that and then bow down and worship it. 
sounds simple enough. In fact, I've had that command, the one kind of command that I said, well, I, I'm pretty sure I'm safe about that one. I, I never built something that looked like a moon or a sun, never built anything that looked like a man or a seahorse. And I, I never, uh, never made anything with my hands and thought to set it up and go, okay, now I'm going to bow down. I'm going to serve you and you're going to be my God, right? Most of us have had that command covered, but Apparently, we're heading into a day and in an hour in the decades ahead where human beings do make something that is an image of what we see in the earth, right? We want to create, we want to create a, an image of a brain, a human brain. We want to replicate it. We want to create an image of it, a digital image, a replication, a simulation of it, and when that thing uh, apparently thinks for itself and tells us what to do, we're then going to bow down and serve it. So it will be the most fundamental violation of the very first command that comes out of Sinai. Then we moved into the book of Joshua, which strangely or fascinatingly enough is the name of the Son of God, right? So when God comes to Mary and Joseph, he says, I want you to name my son Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is the Hebrew form of the English name Joshua. So Jesus's name, as a, uh, we're accustomed to uh, naming him Jesus. So when we look at the book of Joshua, we should have in mind that God named his son Joshua. And as it turns out, there's many, many interesting parallel realities between the ministry of Joshua and the ministry of Jesus, especially when it comes to his return. Now, we all know Joshua was the one who was given the orders to execute on the promises of God, right? All of the promises about land, the promises that they would have a nation and a people, or, or more specifically promises to, to Abraham, the promises to Isaac, Jacob, promises to Joseph, and even Moses. You see, when Moses went to take the people to the promised land, Moses was the law. He was the lawgiver. His ministry symbolized the law. And who was able to escape the law and enter in to the promised land? They all perished. They all went in to the wilderness and died. Why? Because under the law, no one escapes. Under the law, no one is justified. We have all fallen short. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags. The law justifies no one. And so when Moses went in, and he was the symbol of the law, you can be sure that no one's coming out. The promised land was right there. And Moses, if anyone could have gotten in 
for uprightness? It would have been Moses. Moses was a man of incredible character. When you think about what he accomplished, what he was asked to do, and what he did as a leader, it's <laughs> astounding. It's astounding. It makes me tremble in my boots for how much I lack in uprightness and character compared to a man like Moses. Yet, Moses himself wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. Everyone except one and his buddy. It was Joshua. Joshua alone came through the law and entered the promised land. He was the one who was found worthy. He was the one that God said, yes, you have fulfilled the requirements of the law. You are fit and worthy and called to enter into the promise. Everyone else in that generation died in the wilderness. But it is Joshua who comes out and leads the people into their promise. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He goes in, crosses the Jordan, and takes the land that God has promised. So just like our Savior Jesus, Joshua executes and fulfills the promises of God. But not only that, then he marches into the land in this dramatic display of not just, you know, God saying, uh, you know what, Joshua, chill, I'll go ahead, I'm going to wipe out all these people before you. Um, by the time you get here, everything's going to be taken care of. Just go ahead and start setting stuff up. No, God says, I have very specific and detailed plans of how you're going to walk through the promised land. You're going to come to the first city. You're going to march around it a bunch of times. And then on the seventh day, you're going to blow the trumpet seven times. And then on the seventh trumpet, the walls are going to fall down. Well, interestingly enough, there's another story about seven trumpets, and it's in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation talks about seven trumpets blowing, and then on the seventh trumpet, an announcement being made that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ. Interesting parallel. And then there's another parallel that we find in Joshua 8. The story of a city that initially overcomes the saints but then the saints are purified and Joshua leads the campaign against the city, brings the entire city out. In fact, it says there was not a soul left in the city that comes out to do battle against Joshua. The city is ambushed. It is burned to the ground. The king is publicly executed. And this story has a, an incredible parallel in the book of Revelation. Again, Joshua and Revelation. This time it's Revelation 19, where it tells the story of the final battle between Jesus and the beast and false prophet. The beast and the false prophet 
rally all of the kings, all of the leaders to meet Joshua in a field, no, sorry, Jesus in a field of battle. They are ambushed, they are killed. The king is thrown into a lake of fire. And these two stories are incredible parallels. In fact, there's one anchor that without a doubt ties the two chapters together. And it is the, the, the story of Joshua's javelin. You see in the, in, the, in the book of Joshua, he has a javelin in his hand. And when he points the javelin at the city, that is what signals the ambush. Well, there's a javelin in Revelation 19 as well. The javelin comes, it proceeds forth from the mouth of Jesus. It says that with a javelin, Jesus strikes the nations. The word sword in that in our english translations is actually better translated as a thracian javelin interesting bit of information and when you tie those two javelins together you get a picture of joshua against ai and a picture of jesus against the beast and the false prophet interesting parallel so I've just been walking through the Bible here um, with my, really my intent is to get into, you know, the book of Daniel and then get into the teachings of, of Jesus, you know, re regarding the end times, uh, regarding his return, and then, you know, getting into the book of Revelation, then making a few stops here and there. And so I was basically on, you know, in a race to get to Daniel um, get into the book of Daniel. I, I tried it. I failed miserably. I deleted it. I'm, I'm going to get there. But before I do, I was like, man, I really need to get into Psalm 2. I really need to get into Psalm 2. So that's what I'm doing here, getting into Psalm 2. But before I do, I'm going to ask the Lord to open his word to me, because if he doesn't, this is going to be an exercise in futility. So Lord, we look to you. We look to your word now, God. We ask you, Jesus, to open your word to us. Open our hearts to you, to obey you in, in your uh, truth, to love the truth. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to wash over us, anoint us with power, anoint our eyes to see and our ears to hear. We submit to you. We ask you to forgive us for sin. Wash us, cleanse us. We ask for the blood of Jesus to wash over our lives, over our loved ones. God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to rise in us and fill our cups to overflowing. You promised that you fill to the overflow. And we're asking for the overflow of your spirit today. We're asking for the blessing of your word. We ask you to make our hearts exalt and worship and honor you in how we think what we say, what we believe, what we pursue, how we use what you've put in our power to use. Help us. Open your word. 
We give you all the glory for all the good things you're going to do through us, through your word, in the name of Jesus. So, Psalm 2. I believe, I, I didn't do any homework on this, but I believe this is a Psalm of David, right? So here's David asking a very fundamental question. It's a question that if you're paying attention, you should be asking. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? So that, that's, the, that's the initial question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot? In vain. Well, to understand what he's asking in that question, we have to read the next couple of verses to, to narrow it down a little bit. Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So, when we read verse 2 and 3, we have a little bit more light to understand the original question. It's, it's not, the question isn't, you know, why, why are people freaking out? The question is, what makes people so angry? What makes people plot and create plans that are vain? Why do they dream up these plans, these technological towers of Babel. Why do we do this? Why are we so angry? Why do the kings set themselves? Why do the, the leaders of the world come together and decide we're going to set ourselves like a bulwark? Why do the leaders come together and create plans? They take counsel together against the Lord. They are lining up against the Lord. Think about that for a second. The people of the earth are so angry. They're creating these uh, vain plans. They're setting themselves and taking counsel together against the Lord. It's not like you're taking counsel and making a stand against some dude somewhere. No, you're taking a stand against the Lord. And what part of that equation would make you think you would want to be a part of setting yourself against the Lord, the one who made Everything, the one who created the universe, the big and the small. The one who has crafted reality together in a biological, physical masterpiece of unfathomable genius. The one who sits... Well, we'll get to that here in a minute. So David is asking the question, why? Why are all these people on earth all fired up? Why are they all taking counsel together and setting themselves against the Lord, saying this, 
let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does that mean? That means let's break away. We want to break away. We're tired of being tied with these bonds. Bonds of what? Bonds of truth and reality. We're tired of truth and reality and the kingdom of God. We want to break away and create our own thing. Now, is this a good plan to create a a breakaway thing? No. David says it's a vain plan. It's pointless. It's futile. It will never work. Not in a hundred years, not in a thousand years, not in a million years. It will never work. It is a vain plan. So what's God's response to this rebellion, this treachery? So God, the one who has made everything, is now looking at those he has made turn against him thinking that somehow their plans are going to work against him, the Lord. Well, his response is appropriate. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens, the Lord, he doesn't sit in the earth. He doesn't hang where we hang. He is exalted above us. And from his perspective, he sees everything. And from that perspective, he looks upon his creation that is turning against him and plotting a vain plan to create a some sort of breakaway civilization from him. He looks at them and he laughs and says, The Lord holds them in derision. That means to ruthlessly mock. God sits in the heavens, sees his creation turn against him, and he is laughing and pointing and mocking in the most ruthless way. It strikes him as funny, but at the same time, it's a humor with anger. God's not laughing because he's, he's happy. I, I think he's laughing because he thinks it's funny, but then there's also an element of anger in the laugh. It's one of those laughs where only God gets to laugh. Everybody else is kind of going, ha, ha, ha. Is this, this is funny, right? Ha, 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 Because we all know the laugh is an scorning, a scorning, mocking judgment. In verse 5, when... The Lord has a good laugh about the whole situation. It says he speaks to them in his wrath. 
he terrifies them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What God says to the nation is the reason the nations rage. The scenario of Psalm 2 is of the leaders of the world coming together to devise some sort of breakaway civilization from God, setting themselves against the Lord. And God's response initially being mockery. But then his mockery turns to fury. And it says he will terrify the nations with his fury. He will speak to them from his wrath. He will demonstrate how he feels about their rebellion. The kingdom of God has one king. This is a monarchy. This isn't a democratic republic. This isn't something that was dreamed up in ancient Rome. This is something that is in the heart of God forever. Has always been, will always be. There is one king. And God says he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And this is the real rub with the nations. The nations don't want to be ruled by a king, and they certainly don't want to be ruled by God's king. But as far as God's concerned, he doesn't care. He has set his king on Zion. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? The answer to that is a simple one. They don't like the boss. They don't like the one who's in charge. And so, rather than bowing and submitting, they come up with plans. And they try to do, they try to execute the plan that they have. And God, knowing that their plan will never work, ever, ever work, he terrifies them from his fury, speaks to them out of his wrath. And that's the scenario, if you really think about it, of the end times. This final rebellion that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the rebellion that would happen before the return of Jesus to the earth. There would be one final attempt by mankind to join with the devil and set up their own kingdom, this breakaway civilization that they have in mind. But while they do this plan, they are committing atrocious 
crimes against humanity, crimes against God, injustice, murder, tyranny, destruction, so much so that Jesus says that if those days weren't shortened, that if God didn't call the game in time, no one would be left. Like, if God was like, okay, we'll let this thing play out a couple more years. Oh, wait, I can't do that. Because why? Because everyone will be dead. That's this grand and glorious plan that they have to break away from God. That's the way it ends. That's the way it ends. It ends with God calling the game because it's getting so ugly that there will be literally no human beings left. Thanks to this grand plot between human beings and the devil. So, before God lets this whole plan play out, he speaks to them in increasing levels of his wrath and his fury. Much like the ten plagues of Egypt, God will plague the world with one thing after another in escalating ways, speaking to them out of his wrath and fury while they only pursue to br their plan to break away from God with more zeal and energy in the face of those escalating judgments. Verse 7 kind of turns uh, a corner in the psalm. David says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So David identifies himself here, at least identifies with God's anointed. You know, in verse, um, in verse 2, it talks about the rulers taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, who is the Lord's anointed? The, the Lord's anointed is his Messiah. It's his Savior, the chosen one, the, the Joshua, the one who would execute the promises, right? That's his anointed. David never believed that he was the Messiah, never believed it for a second. But he knew he had a connection with this anointed one. He knew that somehow he knew that his life was woven together in the story of the Messiah. David himself knew he wasn't the anointed, but he knew that the anointed one was coming through his line and that his kingdom, David's kingdom, would go on forever and ever through this anointed one who would come along later as the fulfillment of God's promise. So this, with this connection in mind, David says, hey, the Lord says to me, right, but it's not really me, it's to this one who's coming, this one that, that my life is woven together with, but I'm not the one, but somehow I'm, I'm together with this reality. He says to me, today you are, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of earth your possession. Now David knew he wasn't the one who would fulfill this promise. When he says, the Lord says to me or said to me, he somehow 
isn't speaking of himself. He's speaking of the one who would come through his line that God had spoken to him about, the anointed one, the promised one. And that this promised one, the nations would be his heritage. The ends of the earth would be his possession. It says of him that he would break them, break who? Break the nations with a rod of iron. Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this promised one, there's a, there's a, a shift in the psalm starting in verse 7 where David turns his attention to the coming Messiah and the decree that was made regarding this Messiah. Here's the decree, that this is the Son of God. This is a, the Son of God that was begotten by God. This is the Son of God who is given the nations as a heritage and is given the ends of the earth as a possession. This is the Son of God who could say that all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And what is he going to do with this authority? He's going to break these nations that are rising up against him to build a breakaway civilization. He's going to answer these nations with a rod of iron. He's going to break them. Rod of iron, pots of clay. He's going to smash them like clay. You can imagine with a heavy rod, like iron post, just going into a pottery shop that's just made of a bunch of clay pots. And then you just go in there and wreck shop with a rod of iron. Smashing them, these pots of clay giving no resistance. It's not even a fair fight. It is iron and clay. Interesting connection when you think about Daniel 2 and the statue of the final empire at the feet of the statue, the mix of iron and clay. That at some point, the human, the, the, the string of human empires would culminate into a, uh, an empire that would mix iron and clay together. But the iron and clay will not stick together so that there's no way for this empire to, to be sustainable. This is an unsustainable, unstable empire because it mixes iron and clay. The feet of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in, in, in Daniel chapter 2 was a head of gold, chest of silver, midsection of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet, a mixture of iron and clay. And here we have the Messiah with a rod of iron smashing the nations like clay pots. So again, we have this uh, mixture of iron and clay, but this time, instead of the being tied together, it's just the iron smashing clay into pieces. Iron versus clay. It's not a competition, but that is what the Messiah will do to the nations who decide on this final breakaway 
civilization, godless civilization, a godless government and godless way of living. Jesus, the Messiah, will smash with a rod of iron and smash them like clay pots. So then verse 10 starts with some advice from David to the kings. You know, in light of this reality, how should we then live, right? If, if, we, know, if we know that the, the nations are raging and, and, and we understand that the nations are raging because God has set his king in Zion, and we know that these nations and kings and leaders are setting themselves and planning these plans to break the bonds of God, to break away from God. If we know that the one who sits in the heavens laughs at these plans, laughs at these attempts, and we know that the Messiah, the anointed one, is coming, the one, the king that God has set in Zion is coming with a rod of iron, to smash these very nations like clay pots everywhere. How, what, would be a, what would be a good way of being a leader if that's the case? Would it, would it be a good idea to go ahead and just join with these, this planning against the Lord? Would it, be, would it be cool if, you know, we just go ahead and, and just jump, jump in and, 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 and be a part of it? Actually, it turns out that that's not a good idea. The Bible in verse 10 says, here, be wise, O kings. Here's David's, this is David's advice to the kings. Be wise, O kings, and be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. David says there's two places we can be. We can either be in the company of those who are coming up with a vain plan to break away from God, we can be in that company, or we can, in verse 12, take refuge in him. Those are the two places that David, that gives us in Psalm 2. Either go ahead and join with the nations that God laughs at, that want to create a breakaway civilization from him, or take refuge in him. Because the Lord is a refuge for any who come to him. The Lord is. This isn't just that this isn't this isn't uh, this isn't a government program. This isn't uh, an insurance policy. This is the Lord who promises to be a refuge for anyone who will not join the rebellion against him. He says, you can either be part of the rebellion or you can be in the refuge. Those are the two places. 
And so David's advice is, hey, listen up, kings. You might want to be wise here. Before you end up being smashed like a clay pot, find refuge in the Lord. He will be your refuge. Before you get all excited about a plan that you can break away from God, consider where this will end. This will end with God speaking to the nations from his wrath, terrifying them in his fury, and ultimately breaking them with a rod of iron. But if you will not join the war against the Lord and against his anointed, you can be a refugee. You can escape that war. You don't have to be a part of it. You can serve the Lord with fear. You can rejoice with trembling. You can kiss the sun. You can take refuge in the Lord. And that's David's advice to us in Psalm 2. And that's pretty good advice. To reject the vain plans to reject the rage of the nations and to embrace the refuge of the Lord. You can find refuge in Jesus. Maybe you've been raging against the Lord. Maybe you've been plotting in vain against him. Maybe you've spent too much of your time, too much of your life, raging, fighting. You can surrender. You don't have to keep fighting. There's nothing that says you have to keep fighting. You can surrender, wave the white flag, just say, God, you win. I'm yours. Forgive me for my sin. I repent. I believe. I want to follow you. That is the gateway of God. That's the staircase that God has made. The gateway provided in Jesus. Anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus can be saved. And you can find refuge in him today. And I encourage you, if you've never turned your life over to Jesus, to completely surrender to him, to ask him to come in and lead you for the rest of your life, to worship and praise him, to live in light of the word of God. I would encourage you to do that today. And it's just one simple prayer. It's one breath away. You turning your heart to the one who bled for your sin. So uh, Psalm 2, quick overview, summary, I should say. David asked the question, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? Why do they set themselves against the Lord? Well, the answer to that is that verse 6, God has set his king in Zion. Who is this king? This king is the Messiah, 
the Son of God, the one who is given all authority in heaven and earth. He will come as God speaks to the nations from his fury and his wrath. He will break them with a rod of iron like pots of clay. How then shall we live with this being the case? Well, we should serve the Lord with fear and find refuge in him. So that's pretty much it for Psalm 2. Um, I hope you're blessed by today's show. I think I'm going to be getting into the book of Daniel in the episodes ahead. So look forward to that and uh, hopefully you join me next time on Babylon Singularity. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you. And I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.